In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the last Sunday of Easter. It is the Sunday after the Ascension. On Thursday we celebrated Christ's ascent into heaven and his promise that he would go and make a place for us, that he would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. You'll remember that he tells the apostles that they are to go and stay in Jerusalem, that they are to wait on the coming of the Holy Spirit. They spend that 10 or 11 days, depending on how you count, in prayer and in worship of God in the temple. And uh, when he is preparing to ascend, when he is preparing uh, them and he is standing there on the Mount of Olives, they ask him, is this now when you're going to establish the kingdom of Israel? Is this now when you're going to establish Israel as your kingdom? And so you can see that they're continuing with this hope uh, that the Israelites had had for a thousand years at this point for a kingdom, for a king, for a, um, a government solution to their problems, for a military solution, a political solution to their problems. Uh, This is something that people have always looked for. Uh, We've always looked for this kind of safety and for the world uh, through government to kind of solve things for us. Um, And and you can see that the thousand years that they had been waiting uh, is a time that we have, I think, sometimes difficulty in understanding. Uh, For example, uh, there have been a couple of times when there have been extended periods of a a Christian uh, rule. Uh, One of the first, of course, would be uh, when Rome moves to Constantinople and the Eastern Roman Kingdom is established. Uh, They're established about 400 A.D. and it lasts until 1453 A.D. uh, at the fall of the Turks. That's a thousand years that they had a Christian kingdom there in Constantinople. The uh, kings of Russia, Moscow and Kiev, uh, start about 900 A.D. and they go all the way until the Romanovs in 1900. That's about a thousand years. They called themselves the Third Rome. Uh, Our little republic has lasted a couple over 200 years, right? Very short uh, in comparison to these great spans of time. Uh, The thousand years we're marking is from the time when... uh, Samuel is told by the Lord to anoint Saul as king. And you remember that the Lord's purpose, his intention was that he would be the people's king. That God would be the king of the people and that he would gather them and that they would follow him, that they would be obedient to him. The idea of setting up a a government was not God's plan. His government was the kingdom of God. And so uh, they... They, if you remember, are led into the promised land uh, by Joshua. And from the time of Joshua, uh, about 1500 uh, B.C., until the time of Samuel, about 1000 B.C., for about these 500 years, we have the time of the Judges. And you remember, if you've read the book of Judges, that the line that we hear over and over again is that a judge like Samson rises up, or Deborah rises up, and then the judge goes away, and the people do what? They do each of them according to their own will. They each go their own way. And so they're um, broken, they're disunited, and 
and uh, they cry out, they say, why can't we have a strong man? Why can't we have a strong leader to save us from our enemies? And so they call out for the, the rising of a king, for God to appoint a king. And the problem is that we have a, a loving and generous God who's something of a gentleman, and he will let his people have what they want. So he says, okay, you want a king? You can have a king. And he allows a king to be appointed. And so this passage that we have here today from First Samuel chapter 12 is at Saul's inauguration. Saul is the first king of Israel, the first king of Israel. And uh, he has been um, selected out from the tribes of Israel. And this is where Samuel has just poured oil over Saul's head in front of all the people. And he said, here is your king. And then he says, uh, you're getting what you asked for, not what the Lord wanted. The Lord wanted to be your king, but you've asked for a king instead. And the people are convicted by this. They realize what it is that they've done. They realize the mistake they've made. And so now they're responding back to Samuel in response to that mistake. And they start in 1 Samuel chapter 12 to say, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. They realize that they have separated themselves from God, that they have been protected by Him being their God and King, and they've separated themselves from Him, and now they realize that the consequence of separating themselves from God is death. And they say, pray that we don't die. And Samuel's response is a great one. Samuel says, um, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And then what we might expect somebody to say, what we say all the time to each other is, oh, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. People make these kinds of mistakes all the time, right? We kind of lower, right, what it is that the other person has done. We try to make them feel good about themselves. What does Samuel uh, say? He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. He says, yeah, you committed this evil and the consequence should be death. He says, uh, that's exactly what you should be afraid of. But God is going to protect you because His promise has been made. His promise is to be your God and for you to be His people. And it doesn't depend on you for that to be accomplished. God's uh, promise of the establishment of His kingdom doesn't depend on other people or depend on your response. This is God's promise. So he says he will make you a people for himself. And you can kind of read there, he's going to make you a people one way or the other, right? Uh, By hook or by crook, right? This is going to happen. Uh, And he says, uh, then he says, I'm going to do my part, which is I'm going to pray for you. So he says, uh, you know, I'm not going to let this fall on my head. I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to do, right? So I'm going to pray for you despite your sin. And he says, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to instruct you to do what's right. And this is what we're all called to do as prophets, as a a priesthood of all believers, as shepherds in God's church. We're all called to do this. We're all called to say to one another, to those who are under authority to us, to say, uh, you've sinned, there's going to be a consequence for this, uh, but do not be afraid. I'll do my part, I'll pray for you, and I'm going to teach you how to do what's right. And Samuel teaches them to do two things, which we've seen over and over again in the scriptures, right? The first thing is fear God. Be afraid of God. And as we've said before, sometimes people try to soften this fear and and make it into something less than real fear. And we're supposed to have real fear of God. The same way that I have real fear of fire or real fear of electricity, it doesn't mean that I don't use it. It doesn't mean that I don't get the benefits, but it means that I'm going to approach it right with caution. 
I'm going to follow the rules of electricity, the rules of fire. I'm not going to try to make my own rules for the use of electricity, right? I'm not going to try to come up with my own way. I'm going to follow electricity's rules, right? And the way that I'm dealing with it, and I'm going to deal with it with caution. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to say, well, I'll never use it, right? But I'm going to follow the right way. So the same thing for God. We're afraid of Him, and we learn His laws, His ways of approaching God. Right? And so that's the second part. He says, and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Faithfully is really great. Because sometimes we have this word faith that seems like this kind of enigmatic, ethereal kind of what is it? Is it a feeling? Is it a thought? Faithfully captures a little bit more of what faith is because it means loyalty it means obedience it means doing what we've been told to do that's what it means to have faith it means uh, to hear what God has told us to do and to do it so he says you're going to serve God faithfully you're going to be obedient you're going to be loyal to the ways of God right and we're going to do that with our whole heart we don't get to do it kind of haphazardly we don't get to do it with kind of one hand behind our back uh, we don't get to do it recalcitrantly, right? Like, all right, I'll do what you want. No, we have to do it with our whole heart, right? With all the enthusiasm and hope and faithfulness of God. And the radicalness of this, the, the radical change that, that Samuel is talking about here at Saul's uh, inauguration is further cemented for us and explained for us in the Gospel according to St. John. You'll remember that here we are in John's Gospel, chapter 17, and we see this radical transformation of fear and faithfulness in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll remember that here in chapter 17, he's still in the upper room. This is still that time um, after he started the la- uh, in- instituted the Last Supper and before he goes to his death. In John's Gospel, we have chapters and chapters of Jesus um, preaching and teaching to the apostles. And uh, we call it... Um, Uh, the farewell address, right? He is uh, telling them what's going to happen when he leaves, what's going to happen after he ascends to the Father. And he's explained to us, you'll remember, this relationship that we have through the Son with the Father. you remember that we've talked about this in a figure eight. So the Father is in the Son as the Son is in the believer. The believer is in the Son as the Son is in the Father. Do you see that figure eight? He explains that. And you remember last week uh, we had defined for us what a believer is. And a believer is to love God, right? To, to serve God uh, in love and uh, to be obedient, to be faithful to the ways of God. Now he's taking this idea for us of what it means to be a believer, and he's, he's taking it even further. He's showing us even deeper what it means. He says to be a believer means that we are united with one another. We can't be a believer by ourselves. To be a believer, it means that we have to be in unity with one another. Which, when I say that, I always think, is that really what we want? Is that really what we want? Are we really here for that? Are we really here to be united to one another in the same way that the Son is united to the Father? Do we really want that? Do we really know what that means? You'll see here that in the farewell address here in chapter 17, starting at verse 20, he is praying, he says, um, not just for these, which means the apostles. He's not just praying for these that are gathered, but he's praying for all those who will believe through their word. He says, for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. So that's us, right? We believe through the word of the apostles, right? We say that we follow the apostles' teaching. Uh, We say uh, that we believe in the faith of the apostles, right? So that's 
us. We believe through the word of the apostles, right? And, and so he's saying that, that those who believe us will all be one. So this is part of what it means to be a believer. A believer is faithful to God. A believer is obedient to God. And believers are one with one another. He says that they will be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Even more radical. He's saying that you and I are going to be united in the same way that the Father and the Son are united. That's pretty radical. You and I are united in the same way that the Father and the Son are united. Father are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me. I and them and you and me. Right? So he is saying that we are going to be one just as he is in us and he is in the Father. And he says that there's a point to this. There's a point to our unity. There's a strategy to us being so united. In verse 23 he says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. So our unity, our being one, is a sign for the world that God is one. That's a heavy task. This is why at Jesus the Good Shepherd, and we don't do it perfectly, I don't do it perfectly, but we strive to be gracious to all Christians, not dismissing one group or another and saying, oh, we, we're not like this group of Christians, or we're not like that group of Christians, or oh, this group is doing it wrong, or that group is doing it wrong. Because our unity is the way in which God's love is made known to the world. He says, so that we are perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So our lack of unity is inhibiting our ability to show the world that God is one and that he loves us. He says, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be one with me where I am. That means that we are able to join with the Son in heaven. This is that joining of heaven and earth, of coming together, of dwelling, of indwelling, of tabernacling, of heaven and earth, that we would be one with the Son where He is. He says, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known. So he is continuing to reveal himself. The son is continuing every day to manifest himself, to make himself known to us. That the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he continues to make himself known, to manifest himself to us so that we may be one when we recognize Christ and so that we may make him known to the world. So, what does that look like? It looks like a little bit of what we read in the Acts of the Apostles. Scary as it is, I guess we'll have to look at it since we read it. huh? 
Are you brave enough to read this with me? Acts chapter 16. So you'll remember that we've been reading through the Acts of the Apostles and we've been following with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas who had been traveling and they had gone on that first missionary journey. They had left Asia. They'd gone into Asia Minor, present day Turkey. Right? They travel um, through modern day Turkey. They get beat up a couple of times, thrown out of a bunch of towns. They finally have to go back to Antioch, Syria. And then you'll remember they get word that there's a major division in the church, right? Because uh, Gentiles and Jews are eating at separate tables. When they come together for Holy Communion, there's a Jewish Holy Communion and a Gentile Holy Communion. This can't continue, right? So in Acts chapter 15, they have the Council of Jerusalem and St. Peter and St. James, the brother of our Lord, say, this is the way it's going to be. We're all going to be one. We're not requiring Gentiles to be circumcised or to keep the purity laws and we're going to share one table, right? There's a basic standard. No sexual immorality, no eating food to idols, and nothing in its own blood, right? So there's those basic laws, After they leave the council of Jerusalem, they say, okay, Paul and Barnabas and others and Silas as well, you take letters to all the churches and you tell them what we've decided here at this council. So they go back out again and they get back to Antioch and then Paul says, okay, now we need to go and we need to talk to all these churches in Asia Minor and maybe even go farther. And uh, Barnabas says, great, let's go and I want to take again with us uh, Mark. John Mark. And Paul says, no, because last time we went, he left halfway through. And I'm not taking him again. I'm not taking somebody who's going to leave again. So Paul and Barnabas have a split in unity. So how quick was this, right? So sometimes people like to think, oh, there was a golden era of the church, right? A golden era when everything was great. No such thing. Right? Already here in Acts chapter 16, there's disunity because Paul and Barnabas can't get on the same page about Mark and him going with them. So instead, Paul and Silas go. So in Acts chapter 16 here, we have Paul and Silas, and they're going back, and they go back through Asia Minor, but nothing is going right on this trip. And they end up going across the Bosphorus Strait into Europe. Now they're in their first missionary journey in Europe and Macedonia and they come to this town of Philippi. Now they're really out of their element because every time they've gone to a town, you remember, they go to a synagogue. In Philippi, there doesn't seem to be a synagogue. There's no place for them to go. And you, so you see that uh, he says, as we were going to the place of prayer... So this place of prayer is a place by a river where the Jews were gathering to pray because there weren't enough of them for a synagogue. And you'll notice that all of a sudden there's this we, right? That's St. Luke including himself all of a sudden, right? St. Luke is kind of telling us, by the way, I'm with them. He's not making a big deal about it because he's an apostle and apostles don't make big deals about themselves. So Luke is saying, I'm with Paul and Silas. We're going to Philippi. And you'll notice that when they're in Philippi, there's this woman who has a demon. And the demon knows exactly who Paul is and knows exactly what they're doing, right? The demon says what? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Sounds like the demon knows the gospel. That lot of good it does him. Right? This is sometimes what people will say. Oh, to to accept Jesus, you just have to confess him. Right? You just have to confess that he's God. Well, the demon is doing that. He knows exactly who God is. People make a big deal. Oh, do people believe in God? Are they atheists or not? That really isn't the big deal. 
Because this demon knows that there's a God, this demon knows that there's a Jesus, this demon knows the way of salvation. The demon just isn't doing anything about it, isn't being faithful or loyal. And so Paul finally gets irritated and casts the demon out, and then the people who had been making money on this poor slave girl decide to try to arrest Paul and Silas. Say, you can't take away our living that way. And so they arrest them and throw them in jail. Now it's very interesting when they get to jail, because you'll remember that um, afterwards, after all is said and done, Paul says, when they try to dismiss it and, 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 and sweep it under the rug, right? Paul says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Which makes you question, why didn't he tell him that in the first place? That's what you and I would have done, right? But he wasn't looking for a government solution. He wasn't looking for a political answer. He was looking for the power of God to be made known. That's the whole reason why he's in Philippi. So he's not waiting for his credentials to save him. He's waiting for God to save him. And how does God do it? By worship and prayer in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas are singing hymns while in prison. This is that unity that we're talking about. This is that joy of the Holy Spirit. Excited yet? So when we get thrown in prison, right, for speaking the word of God, we sing hymns in the middle of the night. In joy. And then God miraculously frees them of their bonds, and the Philippian jailer gets ready to commit suicide. What other option did he have? He could either die by his sword, or he could die humiliated, right, and they'd probably kill his family with him in the government square. So he says, I can either die and bring shame on my whole family um, in public, or I can just kill myself now. Maybe they'll think that one of the prisoners killed me, right? And what does Paul do? Remember who this Philippian jailer is. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman. He's of a different ethnic group. He has a different language. He's the bad guy. He's the enemy. Right? By every qualification that Paul would have, the Philippian jailer is the opposition, the other party. But out of the love of God and faithfulness, he calls out to the jailer and says, Don't harm yourself. We're still here. Why didn't he run away? Because he was again waiting for the power of God to be made known. And the Philippian jailer falls down and he says, what must I do to be saved? Now sometimes we read that as being a spiritual question. He, he, this Philippian jailer isn't looking for a spiritual solution when he says, what must I do to be saved? He's talking about his life, right? He's talking about how do I get out of this mess? I'm about to get executed or, or jailed for this. But Paul offers a spiritual solution. He says, accept the Lord Jesus. And now we get Jew and Gentile... Roman and Israelite, right? Asian and European, serving one another in unity. The jailer washes their wounds, and Paul washes away his sins and the sins of his whole family in baptism. Do you see that? The jailer washes their wounds, and they wash him of his sins. He offers them food to eat, and they teach him the spiritual food of the gospel message. They serve one another. Though they are in opposite camps, the world would look at these two men and say they've got nothing in common. 
They've got nothing to bind them together. They've got nothing to recommend themselves to each other. They have no similar government, no similar background. And yet by the love and power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and faithfulness and true loyalty, they serve one another and humble themselves together in love. And that's what it looks like when we wait on the power of God. When we are willing to submit to one another in unity. When we are willing to serve one another and to be served. When we are willing to love and to be loved. When we are willing to be in unity with one another. So that when the world sees us, they see the love of God. And they might turn to Him with all fear and faithfulness.